You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. So the next lecture is on surgical complications and management. And this lecture has a lot of contributions from Sunil Chilakuri, who is the medical director for the meeting. Um, so I want to thank him and acknowledge him for his contributions to this talk. This one, um, there's no relevant disclosures again, and there's no audience response system for this talk. So don't worry about your buttons for questions. It's important to think about complications, and the reason is because we want to prevent them and be able to manage them when they do occur, right? So what kind of procedures do we have to be concerned about? Well, in reality, it's all of our procedures. It depends what your practice does. My practice is about half cosmetic and about half medical in Mohs, um, and so I have to deal with both of those types of, of complications. So you guys have to kind of look at your practice and figure out where are your risks, and those are the areas where you have to be prepared for complications. Um, I think that the most important thing for preventing and managing complications, and it's come up with Dr. Carr and Dr. Chilakuri, is we have to be accessible to our patients. Um, so uh, many of us take calls from our patients, even if we didn't actually do the procedure, if my partner did a procedure, or you guys as the PAs may be taking calls sometimes for your uh, medical doctors who have done the procedures as well. And the procedures that you're going to be worried about, we're going to focus here really on surgical excisions and surgical complications. Um, but don't forget that all these other procedures that we do can have complications that should also be avoided and managed. And uh, the cosmetic stuff will save for another day. So the best thing you can do, the most critical thing to prevent complications and to manage them is to be open with communication with the patient so that they can get a hold of you if something's going on. Um, every single Mohs surgery patient gets my cell phone and they get my email address. And I really am happy when they call me or text me or email me and say, is this okay? I'm really unhappy when they don't. So the worst thing that can happen, Dr. Carr said this earlier too, is a patient has a problem the night after surgery and they go to the emergency room. If a forehead flap goes to the emergency room, they don't know what to do with that. <laughs> the emergency doctors freak out. And yes, they do things like admit them for IV antibiotics, you know, or um, they, they, they just don't know how to manage these wounds. So I'm happy to, if there's really an emergency, I'm happy to talk with the ER doctor and get my butt over there. Um, but I have to say, I've never been to an ER with my patients, and the only time they've ever gone is when they haven't called, they haven't known how to do that. So this goes back to communication again. You have to make sure that when you're giving a uh, patients and post-op instructions and there's phone numbers on there, make sure they know that those phone numbers are on there. Circle them, highlight them, do something so that they know how to find you. And if they're sort of not very receptive, maybe they're old and they're tired and they're not really hearing anything you're saying, at least whoever's taking care of them will see it circled or highlighted on your paperwork. So um, every time you're getting discharging a patient, you need to make sure that your post-operative instructions are communicated clearly, orally, but also in writing. 
um, so that it's clear to whoever's assisting those people what needs to be done. And if the ER doctor is given that piece of paper, they can call you, you know. So it's just, it's good to have that um, in your papers. So you start preventing complications before you ever start doing a procedure, right? It has to stop, start preoperatively. And I know we spoke a little bit this morning about tobacco use, but this is the patients who are smokers by far have the most post-operative complications. Um, so if you, if you walk into the room and it's like a cloud of cigarette, you know, aromas, <laughs> um, you know you have to talk to this patient about smoking. And you may not even want to do your procedure. If it's a non-urgent thing, if this is a basal cell and not a melanoma, you may give them a serious talking to about smoking cessation or at least cutting back their smoking and schedule them two weeks out. You know, just get them, get them thinking that direction because the less they smoke, the better your outcomes are going to be. Um, so, you know, that's something to really consider and counsel your patients before you ever get into the complications. Plus, think about how much other benefit you can do them <laughs> besides just healing this one wound, right? Um, so it's a good idea to really discuss that thoroughly. Smokers have a 300% increased risk of flap necrosis compared with healthy controls. That's huge. Um, it causes immediate smoking causes immediate vasoconstriction and it lowers the oxygenation pressure by about 50%. So they're getting half as much, much healing oxygen to the wound. Um, that's not, not going to be helpful. Nicotine also stimulates the adrenergic system, and studies have shown that stopping even two days before surgery will improve flap survival. So if you can get them to cut back or stop even for a few days and get through the, the perioperative period, you're better than if you had just ignored it and tried to go on anyway. Postoperatively is when you see all the complications. So this is a mnemonic we use with the residents. It's his sad post-op course. Um, you can see it's spelled out here. H is for hematoma, bleeding. I is for infection. S is for spitting sutures, um, also for scars. A for allergic contact dermatitis, and D for dehiscence. So we'll go through each of these <coughs> letters in this mnemonic. Hematoma. So hematoma is just bleeding into any potential space. It usually happens one or two days post-op, and it can be very painful from the pressure underneath. Some areas can be emergencies, um, if it's pressing on nerves, things like that. And, or in the orbit, if you have bleeding in the orbit, um, a periorbital hematoma can cause blindness. Um, there's higher risk of two other post-operative complications when you have a hematoma. Can you guys guess which two of those might be? Infection, what else? Dehiscence, so we'll get into that. But um, if you have a hematoma underneath, it can cause enough pressure that you can get a higher dehiscence rate. Um, so sometimes these might require incision and drainage. So this is Dr. Chilakuri's case. This is a 97-year-old man on Coumadin with a three millimeter deep melanoma on his flank. Pretty big one. Um, he excised this down to fascia and did a 15 centimeter closure. Six days later, <laughs> his INR was five. 
Remember this morning we talked about counseling your patients prior to surgery. Now with melanoma, you're not gonna have a lot of time to fiddle around with INRs, um, but if you can get them cleared to, to stop their Coumadin for a couple of days before surgery, it's not a bad idea. Um, and I've had this, I've had not quite that bad, but I've had a patient with an INR of five, which was noticed after we had bleeding problems. And same thing, she had, she had known her INR was high, but nobody had asked, you know, so um, you gotta check these things and ask about them in advance. So what could have been done to minimize this? So you can't stop his Coumadin. His INR is five, it's a melanoma, it's gotta come out, you do the surgery. What can we do? Yes, monitor the INR more closely. Um, but you can, you can put a lot more deep sutures. We were talking on one of the breaks here today about putting in even three layers of sutures. And a lot of times on the trunk or the back, that's a good idea. If you're going all the way down to fascia to excise a melanoma, um, to put a deeper layer of sutures under there to close that potential space um, can help. So some placating sutures underneath can really help to seal that space up. Um, so don't be afraid to make more than two layers. You know, it doesn't just have to be dermis. There's this huge space between the dermis and the fascia where the fat was, and you can, you can pull that all together. Um, also, you can do pressure dressings. Now here, on the flank, that's hard. If you're gonna try and put a pressure dressing around somebody's rib cage, make them breathe in first, <laughs> because you don't wanna make it hard for them to breathe later, right? So at least you'll be getting pressure on inspiration. Um, even if it's not full pressure all the time. So those are things that could, could have been done to help out in this case. If it's a smaller area, like somebody's bleeding from a flap on their nose, applying ice can be um, an excellent vasoconstrictor. That just the action of applying the ice to vasoconstrict and the pressure to apply the ice, those two things work very well together to help to minimize hematoma. I routinely also have people apply ice just around the whole surgical area when I anticipate they're going to have swelling in their eye. Anytime you work above the eye or even on the upper part of the nose, in a few days people always end up with periorbital edema and they, you know, they're calling you saying, oh my God, my eye is swelling shut, <laughs> what do I do? Um, and so I advise them that that is going to happen um, before I do the surgery and then I have them ice several times that first day, that first 24 hours in order to help to minimize the the risk of hematoma and the swelling. Elevation's also helpful. You know, um, we have patients sleep after head and neck surgery. We have them sleep with an extra pillow or two at nighttime so that their head's propped up above their heart. If you're working on their leg or their arm, same thing. You just want to advise them, elevate that. That's going to have a lower risk of hematoma. And like I said earlier, you really want your patients to follow your post-op instructions. So make sure they understand them and that they're on board with them. Um, it's just a matter of communication. Don't just throw a piece of paper at them and send them out the door. Um, it may not get read for a week, you know, so you have to verbally tell them what, you're, what you expect of them um, and make sure that you get some sort of acknowledgement of that from the patient. So let's go back to this hematoma. How could it be managed? Well, should we open it up? Sometimes. How do we decide if we should open it up? Is it painful? 
If it's painful, it may be there's so much pressure under there that you've, you've got something in there you can relieve their pain by opening it up. Is it still actively bleeding? If that hematoma is still expanding, there might be something under there that you need to stop, and so that might be a reason. How easily will it resolve if you don't treat it? If you think it's going to resolve, okay, maybe you don't need to. Um, but you have to kind of think about that, what you expect the course of this to be. How about infection risk? If you've got big, goopy hematomas under there, um, then you're going to increase your risk of infection and dehiscence, right? Um, so that might be a reason to open it up. And the health of the patient and the location have to be considered as well. So for this, this 97-year-old man, um, Dr. Chilakuri did open him up with an 11 blade, and he used a little curette and got out all the little bits of hematoma, the loculations, put him on antibiotics and a new pressure dressing, and then arranged a visiting nurse to check on the wound. Um, I think using visiting nurses for some of these elderly patients is a very good idea. <laughs> and it's something we in dermatology sometimes forget, but for a slow healing wound like on the lower extremity, Medicare usually will cover the, the cost. And if you have a home health agency that you're comfortable to work with and you know they're going to follow your instructions, sometimes it's easier than having the patient coming into your office two or three times a week for changes, dressing changes, um, and it might keep them out of the ER. If you have a bad home health nurse, though, they may send them to the ER for anything. <laughs> so there's, there's a catch-22 there. Postoperative bleeding is much, much more common a problem than a hematoma like you just saw. Um, it's very common with second intention wounds, especially on the lower extremity. Um, why doesn't it show up in the clinic? Exactly. Um, because the epinephrine effect of the local anesthetic takes a few hours to wear off. So if I have anybody I'm worried about post-op bleeding um, that's a second intent wound, and all of my surgical patients, I call them all on the phone about 8 o'clock at night after I put my kids to bed. They say, hey, it's Dr. Chips calling to check on you. And once, maybe twice a year, somebody will say, actually, I'm bleeding a little bit. What do I do about that? <laughs> and then instruct them, remind them about applying ice, applying pressure, call them back in 20 minutes and they're better. Um, so, you know, it doesn't show up in the clinic because that epinephrine hasn't worn off, but if you're aware of when that timing is, then you know um, when to look for problems. And for me, that's something I do because it helps me sleep better at night knowing that I'm not gonna get a surprise call at two in the morning from anybody. Oh, I missed one. All right, so that's hematoma. The next part of our mnemonic is infection. How do you know if a wound is infected? First of all, it hurts. Um, usually, it start, it, instead of the pain starting to get better, which typically it does a couple days after surgery, it starts to get more painful, about three to five days post-operative. It's more common in certain sites, like the groin or the bottom or the legs. Um, and so you have to think about, is this a clean area where you did your operation or was it already infected or kind of dirty skin? Um, smokers, smokers get more infections too. Again, gotta tell them to cut back on smoking. Um, if you're assessing a wound, don't forget to use your nose. Don't just look at it, but smell it, you know? Um, usually you'll know, or your patient will know, or you'll know when you walk into the room if there's a bad infection because the whole room stinks, right? 
Um, so don't forget to take that into account. Usually there's staph infections um, and we treat them empirically. I, I don't know if you do this, David, but I take a culture uh, anytime I suspect a wound um, that's infected and I start them on antibiotics. And the reason I do that is because we have quite a bit of MRSA in our community in Los Angeles. And if they're not getting better, then it might be MRSA. So I like to know if in a week they're not better, what, what was growing there. And then I can change the antibiotics if I need to. Lower leg second intent wounds often do get staph infections. I mean, they all have staph on them, you know. We've got staph all over our skin, so it's definitely there. It doesn't always cause an infection, but when it does, um, they tend to be round, they tend to be hot. You can treat them with um, oral Keflex. Um, you can use other things like Dakin solution, which is sort of a bleach and bicarb mix, um, and do some kind of wet-to-dry dressings with that. Um, or you can use topical antibiotics like mupirocin, which is one that has a low risk for allergies. Um, and compression stockings really help. So whenever I do any surgery below the knee, I always talk to the patient about wearing a compression stocking um, for a while after, not just for a week or two while they have the stitches um, or while they don't have stitches if it's second intent, but I tell them it'll just help to speed up healing. Before I ever do a surgery below the knee, I tell patients, this will take months to heal. If this was on your face, it'd be healed in a week, but it's below the knee, it's gonna take months. And it's gonna take over a year for the scar to settle and look as good as it's going to look. Um, because if you don't prepare people for that, and maybe they've had Mohs before on their cheek or something, they're gonna think you're the bad surgeon because your wound didn't heal like the one on the cheek did. Um, so again, you have to prepare people before you do a surgery so they know what to expect and what's normal for that area. To prevent infection, recognize your high-risk patients. We talked about that earlier. Smell test, it, positive smell test. This is kind of being facetious, but really if somebody's got poor hygiene <laughs> um, or if the area already doesn't smell quite right, um, of course, you prep well and you clean well, but you might, you might think about that and make sure you're doing a very good prep. Um, on lower extremity wounds, you can do the vinegar water soaks or you can do Dakin's wet to dry, as we mentioned. And then make sure you reinforce what you want them to do with wound care. If they come in with an infection, have they really been following your instructions? You know, make sure you go over those instructions again. If it comes from you as the person who did the procedure, they're gonna follow those instructions better than if it came from anybody else. So make sure you, you remind them. Spitting sutures. So ficral sutures take two or three months to dissolve, right? And that's what we commonly use as our deep stitches in dermatology. So sometimes, as the body's breaking down these vicral sutures, instead of just dissolving them, it sort of breaks them into fragments, chews them up, and spits them out. So you can get little fragments of suture that spit out, and it's usually two or three months after the procedure. Um, all deep sutures have been implicated. I most commonly use vicral, and that's when I see it. There's a couple of situations where you almost can predict it's gonna happen. If I have a new medical assistant and she's not cutting the knots low enough um, and leaves too much of a tail, um, then 
undoubtedly, a couple of months after that new medical assistant started, I get a few patients with spitting sutures. Um, so that happens. Also, if you do too many throws, usually three throws is all you need for a deep stitch, but if you're doing four or five throws, which I've seen some residents do, um, you just have a lot of material in there. Um, so the less material, the better. And then some patients just spit them out. And there's nothing you did wrong. There's nothing you could have prevented. It's just how we all metabolize the material. And some people metabolize differently. Sometimes patients are worried when they come in. They think that the cancer's coming back because they see this red bump um, along their suture wound. Um, or some people think it's just a pimple. You know, they're calling you because they think it's infected. Um, but if you get out your dermatoscope and you, you know, or even your magnifying glass and look closely, you can easily see that bit of, of stitch poking out. And so all you have to do is pick it up with a forcep, and um, I use usually an 11 blade to cut it if it's still held down. Here's an example of what it can look like, just a pimple along the scar line. It's a good tip when you pull out a spitting suture, show it to the patient. Um, because then they feel like, A, it was worth their time to come in and see you. Um, B, they feel more confident in your assessment that this is not cancer or infection, which are the two things that patients often think it is. Um, and just, you know, show them here, oh, this was in there, you should heal up just fine now. And thank them for coming in, and they're happy. All right, so let's talk about scars. I know that Dr. Carr is going to talk about scars a little bit more, but we'll do a touch of it now. So hypertrophic or keloid scars are thick scars. Um, keloid scars are scars that overgrow the wound. So you have a small wound and a big scar that grows over it. A hypertrophic scar stays within the injury. It just gets thick and big there. Um, so those are scars that people don't like. Wide scars people don't like. If the scar spreads, usually that's, um, sometimes it's our technique that we didn't do a good job with our deep sutures um, or we had too much tension on the wound. And atrophic scars, which are depressed scars. You know, we're always trying to evert to get that nice, smooth scar. But if we don't do good eversion over time, we can get these atrophic or depressed scars. So part of that is how we do our surgery, our suturing techniques, like we talked about earlier. Part of that is tension on the scars. Smokers are going to have worse scars, another reason not to smoke. And um, any other comorbidities or complications. If they had an infection or a hematoma or a dehiscence, their scar is not going to look as good. So how are we going to treat these scars? We use a lot of different techniques. Again, Dr. Carr is going to cover some of this. Um, but we use Kinelog injections often for the thick scars or the hypertrophic scars or the keloid scars. Um, but we also use lasers and dermabrasion and topical scar creams as well. So in general, to prevent bad scars, you have to get some eversion of your wound edge when you're suturing. Um, that's almost always true. So make that part of your habit and look at your, your suturing technique to make sure you're getting good eversion. There's other ways to reduce tension, um, like on the forehead. Um, I have another slide for this, but on the forehead sometimes I'll, I'll use Botox um, either in the glabella or on the forehead to minimize movement around a wound while it's healing. Um, so I had a woman come in, I don't know, two weeks ago for 
uh, Mohs consultation with a little basal cell right here in the glabella. I know that if I can immobilize this area prior to surgery, that her scar is gonna look better in the end. So at the consultation, we did Botox, she'll be back in two weeks, and then we'll do her Mohs. Um, and then she'll have the best possible outcome with her scar. Um, so that's one way to reduce tension across a scar. Another way is to use your pulley sutures and your mattress sutures. Again, you want to you want to reduce tension so that you have less pull against the against the wound and less scarring. Don't put that tension though on your epidermal sutures. All of the tension has to be on your deep stitches. If you over tighten the epidermal sutures you're gonna get track marks and you can have a wider scar line because you can get necrosis of the edge of the tissue. Um, so the epidermal sutures really are just keeping things just perfectly aligned. That's all they're doing. They're not pulling anything together. They're just holding it there where you've already, where you've already set it with your deep sutures. So here's a case. This is from one of my partners. Um, a TV personality, and he was really concerned about the optimal outcome of this scar. So the question here, and I already gave away the answer, is what additional treatment might you perform immediately following reconstruction to minimize tension across this wound? And the answer is Botox, right? So whatever you can do to prevent any pull. If he raises his frontalis, that's pulling that, that wound open, right? You don't want him to do that. Um, so this is a, a time when we might do what I like to call in Beverly Hills Brotox um, to smooth his forehead and prevent him from forming lines, but also from pulling that wound apart. Um, and patients love this. They love this idea, and it, it helps. It works. Another thing that you can do to prevent scarring, if you're very worried about scarring in somebody, um, is some laser resurfacing, resurfacing, fractional laser resurfacing. So in our office, we did a study, a split scar study a few years ago, where we, treat, we put in our deep sutures, and then we treated half of the wound with this fractional CO2 laser prior to putting in our epidermal sutures. And the scar, the half of the scar that we treated with the laser healed better, looked better. So. Um, I do that. I do offer that sometimes. Sometimes I'll use an erbium laser, which is a little bit easier healing. Um, still a fractionated laser, though. And they both work to help to improve the appearance of the scars. So if you have that at your disposal and you have a cosmetically sensitive patient, it's a nice technique. That's not covered by Medicare. <laughs> This is one of Dr. Chilakuri's slides also. He had a big Mohs defect and did an advancement flap on this young guy's forehead. And has a resultant scar. This is young tissue. This is a tight closure, right? See the pulley stitches he has across here? See those? So you know there's a lot of tension on this wound. Um, so where do you think the scar is gonna look its worst? Is the scar going to have tension here or this part by the brow? It's the forehead, right? So that part of the scar is going to require a little bit of work. That's not going to look as good as down here. And it is a process. So um, there's a lot of fractionated lasers that have been described to 
um, improve the appearance of these scars, and all of them help. Um, it doesn't matter which one you have in your office. If you have some fractional resurfacing laser, ablative or even non-ablative, um, with repeat treatments, you're going to stimulate new collagen and you're going to help to break up that scar so it doesn't look so noticeable. So there's um, good data for that. Also, if it's just redness of the scar, you can use your vascular lasers. So you can use your KTP or your PDL. That'll help to soften the redness out of there. Um, and the part of the scar with the least amount of tension is always going to heal fastest and look the best. So that's his, the question down here. This part of the scar will heal nicely. This part of the scar needs more work and more attention. This is before and after two treatments, and you can see the horizontal part of the scar is almost gone. Oops. After two treatments. But the vertical part where all that tension is takes a lot more work, and so you have to prepare patients for that as well. I mentioned you can use your vascular lasers for scars. The pulse dye laser and the KTP, but I use the pulse dye more often, help um, the scars themselves. They help with neovascularization, you know, part of healing. You get all these new blood vessels in there. So a lot of times, especially on the nose, we'll see a lot of telangiectasias or new blood vessels around a surgical scar. Patients don't like those, so the pulse dye laser is great. Yeah. I generally wait about two months before doing any laser procedures. Um, there's some arguments that you could start as soon as six weeks. Most of that comes from literature about dermabrasion. Um, but I know from experience that the more time you give it, the better these scars look without any intervention. Um, so I think there's this sweet spot around two to three months um, when it makes sense to start manipulating scars, talking about dermabrasion and um, laser resurfacing and these other techniques that we can use. That's a good question. Did you all hear the question? The question was how long do you wait um, before starting laser treatments for a scar? Um, so back to pulse dye lasers. Those little telangiectasias or new blood vessels, they respond very nicely to pulse dye lasers. And pulse dye lasers can often be used to soften the scar, especially if it's a keloid, um, before injecting steroids. So, um, this is a pulse dye laser being used to soften the scar in advance of a keloid injection. You guys all had your goggles on, right? Just kidding. And then it's much easier to get that cantalog to flow nicely into the scar. You can do that with cryo, too. And this pulse dye that um, Dr. Chilakuri was using uses cryo to cool the surface of the skin, so it's actually got a little bit of that effect in there as well, I believe. Is there a question? Yeah. You know, if you wait a couple of minutes for tissue edema before you inject the kinolog, it'll be easier. So yes, you could do it immediately, but it's if you just give it you'll see it kind of puff up. You see that when you freeze AKs? You, you know how after a couple of minutes this tissue starts to swell up and get like a little hive looking thing, right? <laughs> so when you start to see that edema of the tissue, 
um, then, then you have a lot of fluid in there, and that kinolog, when you inject it, doesn't have all the resistance. Sometimes injecting kinolog into keloids is hard, right? Because that tissue is so firm. Um, so using the laser or using even just liquid nitrogen um, can help to soften it to make those injections easier. And here's uh, one of the fractionated use lasers. This is a non-ablative fractional laser being used. Um, I don't use these fractal lasers in my practice now. We use instead this fractionated erbium laser, but it does similar um, technique. You want to make sure you're cooling, um, especially on areas that have a little bit of sun exposure. You don't want to get pigment changes, because then you've got another ugliness to deal with. So if you're doing this for cosmetic reasons, make sure you're cooling the skin, make sure that the patient's not tanned. But it doesn't really matter which of these fractional, ablative, or even non-ablative lasers you use. All of them will help some. Um, so here's an example using an erbium laser to improve a scar on this woman's cheek. And you can see after two or three treatments how much better it looks. I have three offices, and two of them are satellite offices that are sort of away from Beverly Hills. And I don't have all of the cosmetic lasers in those offices. So what do you do when you don't have a laser and you have a scar that needs resurfacing? Well, one trick is to do manual dermabrasion. Have any of you done manual dermabrasion? No? Have any of you seen it? Yeah? A couple? Okay. So this is one of my favorite things to do for um, just a linear surgical scar that's just got a little bit of a textural irregularity and needs to be smoothed. Um, I'll use it sometimes on the nose and these really sebaceous noses if there's been, if I've done a bilobe flap or something and there's just a little bit of sebaceous hyperplasia around the scar that's making the scar look pulled down. Um, it works really beautifully and it's cheap and it's a pretty easy procedure. So you prep the area and then you infiltrate with lidocaine, and you just let it sit. This is a time when you really want the epi on your side. You want the epi to help you. Um, so I usually will numb the patient up and wait 10 minutes, go see another patient, come back later, and just let them numb. And when I come back and the tissue's all blanched, then you can do the dermabrasion. If, and the way we do this is we use drywall sandpaper, literally, buy it at Home Depot. <laughs> Cut it into squares about the size of a syringe, maybe five or six centimeter squares. Um, sterilize it in individual packets. Um, and then after I inject the lidocaine, I take the needle off my syringe and I wrap the, the drywall sandpaper around the syringe and then literally just start sanding, sanding the scar. And it's so controlled, it's so... Um, like wood shop. <laughs> like you have total control over, over where you're sanding. Um, and you sand until you start to see this pinpoint bleeding, um, which I'll show you on the next slide. I don't think it matters what grit. Um, do you, Dr. Carr? Is this on? Oh, so I use a uh, 300 grit. So I use extremely fine grit. It takes a little bit more elbow grease. You got to... So it yeah. takes a while, but you can be Ours very, very... Ours is bigger. Yeah, you can um, be very 
but I've, I've had different sizes in different clinics, and I don't think it really makes a difference um, which one you use. So, but you want to sand until you see this pinpoint bleeding. See how bright red that is? Right here. So you know you're in the papillary dermis when you start to see these, the pinpoint bleeding. Um, and then we do hemostasis by whatever lidocaine is still left in that syringe. I gently drip it into the wound so that you get more vasoconstriction. Um, and then apply a, a wad of gauze and pressure. And I'll leave the I'll either leave a medical assistant or sometimes just the patient and have them apply the pressure on there and I check on them in 10 minutes. I have my MA go in and keep checking until they're no longer bleeding um, and then stop. So I don't use lumicaine in these, um, just pressure and the epinephrine to stop bleeding. And it works beautifully. They get very, very nice results. Um, so, yes. I do. Um, I don't know, are we allowed to talk about money here? <laughs> okay, yeah, I do. I charge the patient. Mm -hmm. I tell them it's not covered by insurance. Um, and it's a, I charge a minimal fee, you know, enough to cover my time, but it's not something I'm charging to make a profit. Um, it's just enough to cover the expenses, really. So that's a good question, though. Yes? Most of the time, I only do this once, and that's all you need. Um, they're on sebaceous noses. I find sometimes I need to do it more than once. Um, I'll wait a month to six weeks before doing it again. Um, but there's so much remodeling going on in those first few months after surgery that oftentimes doing this at six or eight weeks is all you need to do. Yes? Yeah, I'd be hesitant to do this in a darker skin patient um, because I'd be worried about uh, hypopigmentation. Um, I, that's honestly never come up, even though I'm in a, a very diverse area. Um, maybe because the skin cancers I see in my darker patients aren't, I don't know, maybe they're not central face. I don't know. I would do it in Asian skin. I'm not sure I would do it in darker skin. What else? Yes? My esthetician does a lot of microneedling. I haven't had her treat surgical scars. Um, she treats acne scars. And with enough treatments, you know, once a month for six, seven, eight treatments, their acne scars do look better with microneedling. So I suppose that surgical scars could too. But that's an assumption. I haven't seen any data on microneedling for surgical scars. I think it would cost a lot more to do um, just because it would be multiple visits to the office and the patient would have to pay for those visits. Um, this is, is inexpensive and easy, you know. So I'd, if it was my forehead, I'd prefer to do this once and be done with it. Yes? I don't, but you could. The question was, do you do this for acne scars? I think there's so many other treatments for acne scars that are safer <laughs> than this. I use the fractionated lasers a lot for acne scars. We do use a little bit of microneedling. Now, lately, I've been using more microneedling with radiofrequency for acne scars. 
um, and have been fiddling with that a little bit with surgical scars as well because people are using it for skin tightening if the patient's tightening their skin and they have an old Mohs scar, why not, right? So, yeah. There's another question over here somewhere. So there's her before and after at one week. So that's pretty good. So in treating scars, remember that we have all these different techniques. You know, it's not just one thing to treat scars. Treating scars begins with your preparation of the patient, stopping smoking. Um, your surgical technique in, intraoperatively, and then you can use different lasers and devices, and you don't have to go buy something new to treat scars. Um, use what's at your disposal, and you can get good improvement. Um, and don't forget Kenalog. Kenalog is amazing for treating scars. Anything that's thick or hypertrophic um, will respond really well to Kenalog injections. Treating earlier is better with scars. If you're, if you're trying to treat a scar that's a year old, um, the remodeling is kind of slowed down. You know, there's not a lot of action going on in that scar anymore. So I really think the sweet spot is in that first two to three months after surgery is when you want to start thinking about how to improve these scars. Um, once you get beyond that, it's a lot more difficult. And, you know, rehabilitation, scar improvement is a journey, and every single one of you can get good results with scar treatments. So don't be afraid to try some of these things. So let's move away from scars, because I know we'll be back to it later. Um, allergic contact dermatitis. This is the A in his SAD. So usually an allergic contact dermatitis is due to adhesives or to topical antibiotics. I know we talked about that a little bit earlier. This usually appears about a week out, if it's their first exposure. It can have a strikingly geometric shape. That makes it very easy. Even the patient can tell you that it was the bandage that caused the wound. Um, but it can also be confused for infection, especially on the lower extremities, um, which is where these often occur. And so if they're itchy, um, then you might want to stop whatever they're putting on there. Um, and you might consider a steroid cream to help to get that under control. So an adhesive allergy, like this one, it's, you know, my old uh, residency director used to say even the elevator operator could diagnose this one, right? Um, but sometimes if it's from a topical antibiotic, or so, it can look like an infection. And they'll, come, they'll call you and say, my leg looks infected. Um, and you bring them in and you see this, say, what did you put on there? Neosporin. Okay. Problem solved. <laughs> so. Um, give them some steroid and they'll get better. And dehiscence. So we've talked a lot today about suture technique. I hope you'll all go practice and make your techniques even better because we all can always make improvements in our surgical skills. Um, sometimes if you're, you know, I talked about when I have a new assistant, I often get a lot of spitting sutures. Well, if your assistant is cutting too low or too close to the knots, your knots can unravel. So that's something you have to train anybody who's assisting you in surgery, that they cut them long enough, but not too long. Um, find the sweet spot. High tension areas are more likely to dehiss. Um, even if I can do a repair on the ankle, 
and a 25-year-old tennis player, <laughs> I'm not always going to do it because I've seen too many times where um, patients can't comply or won't comply with keeping, uh, not being too active, um, and they dehiss. Um, so high tension areas, you ha that can happen. Smoking, I'm still on the smoking thing. Um, Co-complications, if you have an infection, if you have a hematoma, it's a good likelihood that your, your wound is gonna open up a little bit. Um, so that can cause a dehiscence. If the wound is dehissed, but it's early, it's maybe you did the surgery five or six days ago, the wound is very clean, there's no signs of infection or hematoma, you can resuture these wounds. Um, anytime I do that, then I do give them prophylactic antibiotics, um, but if you can see that this is gonna be an ugly scar if you don't repair it at a week out, then sometimes it's worth doing. And make sure that patients who have had a dehiscence, or even those that haven't, um, know what the restrictions are. Um, you know, you don't want them out playing hockey or tennis or, you know, running a marathon after you just sutured their legs. So um, make sure patients are aware of what your restrictions are. Yes? Sure. About a week. Um, a lot of my patients I see weekly because I'm in a certain site weekly. And if I see somebody who dehissed and I, repaired, I had repaired them a week ago, if the wound is just open but it's very clean, there's no infection, there's nothing else, um, then it's okay to go ahead and close it up again and put another stitch or two in. For instance, I had a man this summer who um, we did a long repair here um, from his oral commissure down towards his jawline. And he went from our office without listening to instructions. He went out and ate a big hamburger. <laughs> he was hungry. And the next day he came in um, because something wasn't right with his wound, he said, and it had completely opened up. So, you know, um, he hadn't listened to the instructions of small bites and take it easy this week. You know, anytime you're suturing around the lip, you've got to tell people. Um, small bites and no, no big burgers. <laughs> um, so yes, within a couple of days, if it's a clean wound and it didn't dehiss because of infection or hematoma or anything else, it's perfectly reasonable to rinse the wound a little bit and put in some more stitches so that it has a chance to heal properly. That's a good question. Any other questions? Yes. Mm -hmm. My rules of thumb, so my post-op instructions say no exercise for a week. That's kind of the generic rule of thumb on there. That said, if it's somebody who's maybe walking or jogging and we did a very small mose somewhere on their face and then I'll tell them maybe wait three or four days and resume activity slowly because I'm not worried about dehiscence in that case, I'm just worried about bleeding. Right? And once they're past that first few days, the risk of bleeding goes way down. Um, so then a little cardiovascular exercise is probably okay. Right? If I'm doing a repair on the shoulder or the back and a weightlifter, they're not gonna be lifting weights for a couple of weeks. I tell them lower body only. <laughs> um, so I try, if people who are very active, I try to redirect them as to you know, nothing for a few days and then, and then pick exercises or activities that make sense that aren't gonna put minimal tension on their wounds. 
I don't know. It's a judgment call. But, yeah. Yeah. I don't let my patients go in the pool while they have epidermal sutures in. Period. I just don't let them. After a couple of weeks, um, when the sutures are out, um, then I will let them, especially if it's their own pool. I'm, I'm a little bit more wary of public pools, but if it's their own backyard pool and there's not a lot of other you know, people and bacteria around, then I'll have them put a thick coat of Aquaphor or Vaseline over the wound that's just about healed and cover it with a waterproof bandage and then swim. And then when they get out, take that off, shower, soap and water, um, and more ointment and a new bandage. But I think that oil water barrier of the aquaphor, the Vaseline, and then the waterproof bandage in some cases is enough, especially if it's a second intent wound on the lower extremity that's going to take a long time in a swimmer. <laughs> then we just talk about wound care and cleaning the wound. Yes? So if I'm understanding, the question is, on the lower extremity, do you make the smallest wound possible? Absolutely. Um, you know, I will often do Mohs on the shin um, for a smaller non-melanoma skin cancer because then you're taking out less tissue and healing's going to be a little faster. Yeah. Anything else? Okay. Um, here's a nice dehiscence. Sometimes you just let it granulate. Um, sometimes we can repair like we talked about. Most of the time this is due to your suture technique, but um, some of the time it's due to the patient and their risk factors and their behaviors. A third layer of sutures, a deeper layer of sutures, um, especially like we talked about with the melanoma on the back earlier, um, can help to reduce your risk of dehiscence. Post-op pearls. So any patient who's got early pain that's, that's getting worse instead of better over the first few days after surgery should be seen for a possible hematoma. Any inflammation that's geometric is more likely allergic contact dermatitis than infection. If dehiscence is happening in more than 1 or 2% of your patients, it's probably your fault and you need to look at your surgical techniques and think about how you can do better. Um, if you think there's an infection, since we're no longer routinely doing antibiotic prophylaxis, you've got to have a lower threshold for treating possible infections. Um, usually they're gram-positive, and uh, Keflex is my first choice for most of these infections. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I usually do do a culture when I start antibiotics so that if they don't respond, I know which antibiotic to switch to. And if you suspect it's just a spitting suture, Use your magnifier, even if you can see it with your naked eye, use your magnifier to really make a show of looking at it <laughs> to, so that your patient believes and knows that um, there was a possible spitting suture there. A few more complications here, and we'll go through these one by one. The black graft, swelling on the cheek, uh, pincushioning, numbness, and a teary eye. So. Here's a case. You've got a 78-year-old guy. He came into the clinic one week post-op, 
after, this is a flap, but you could see this after a graft too. Um, and you see that the area is black and firm. So if you see a black flap or a black graft, it's necrotic. First, you want to see if there's any signs of infection. Smell it, culture it if you need to. If it is necrotic um, and there's necrotic tissue hanging around, then sometimes it's worth just scraping it off so that it doesn't um, become a nidus for infection. Um, you can certainly plan to improve the hydration of the wound with um, keeping a moist wound environment, vinegar water soaks, Vaseline. Um, and the most important of all of these is to have a positive attitude. So even when something looks terrible, don't say to the patient, oh my God, that looks terrible, <laughs> because they will not be happy. Um, you want to say, oh, okay, we can, we can make this better. <laughs> and, and so much of how you interact with patients is really an attitude, and how they respond to complications is going to be based on how you respond to the complications. So if your attitude is good and positive, um, then they're going to feel good about it, even if they've got this necrotic thing on their cheek like that, right? Um, and sometimes just letting it kind of second intent heal and debriding off anything that's yucky um, can, can do very well. Here's Sunil's, or this is from Baker. Um, you can see that this healed very nicely. Maybe a little bit thick. I've seen this two or three times in the last decade. This patient had swelling on the cheek that worsens after his meal under the surgical scar. What's going on? Yes, somebody got into the parotid. So sometimes you can't help it. The tumor goes right down into the parotid and it has to be removed. Um, and so if you're seeing parotid tissue on the Mohs slides, then you have to counsel the patient that they should expect this. This is one of those things where it's better to tell them about it before you start the surgery, that it could happen, that it could be a risk. So if you're working around the parotid um, or the tail of the parotid is a common place to see it, uh, make sure you discuss that in your preoperative evaluation. Um, when it does happen, you can do serial aspirations, um, just a sterile aspiration um, and pull out some of the fluid. Doing that repeatedly will help as it heals. Um, you can inject Botox. Botox can also help by blocking the cholinergic receptors so they have less saliva being secreted um, temporarily. And compression is also thought to be helpful for these. So good compression dressings um, while it's resolving. They take a few months to resolve, but they do resolve. All right. Maybe if we did a bilobe flap on the nose and the patient comes back a few months later with this pincushioning deformity or trapdoor deformity. That's probably the biggest complaint with bilobe flaps on the nose. Um, especially when people are first learning how to do them. It's caused by persistent edema and limiting the lymphatic outflow. So part of it is flap design. We see it more in the curvilinear flaps. And bilobe flaps with the two disruptions um, really have this as a higher incidence. Superior base flaps are more likely because the drainage gets stuck. So if you're pulling a flap from underneath, then all the fluid from that flap can drain down. Right? But if you're pull pulling a flap from above, then any lymphatic fluid just pools and causes this deformity. If she came into my office, I would start with a Kinelog injection. I use 40 milligrams per cc. 
Um, and I have her do massaging. I'd give her some scar cream and have her work on it for a month at home, just a little massage after the kinolog. But um, if that's not doing it, and dermabrasion or lasers aren't going to help with that, um, then a surgical revision can be done, um, where you lift up the scar and you undermine all over. But that should have been done initially. That's how you prevent these things from happening. So if you're doing a flap on the nose, make sure you're undermining broadly um, so that you don't have such a high risk of pin cushioning on the nose. Sometimes dermabrasion helps. Sometimes a little scar revision, like a Z-plasty, can help. Um, and sometimes if you anticipate that you might have some bulkiness, you can consider inside, when you're putting your deep stitches in, to tack down the center of the flap um, when you're placing it in the beginning. Numbness. So it's not uncommon for a patient to say, I can't feel my forehead or my scalp or my cheek. It's numb after surgery. With most flaps, you're going to have some localized numbness around the flap temporarily. Um, most of it gets better over weeks, but sometimes it takes months and even up to a year um, for all the sensation to recover. And as that sensation is returning, sometimes patients will have nerve sensations. They'll have tingling or they'll have little shooting pains. Um, and if you just explain to them that's regrowth of all those little nerve endings, um, then they're cool with it because they understand what's happening when they feel those pains. Now, there are times when you can have a permanent loss of sensation. So remember all those nerves we talked about blocking this morning. If you're transecting any of those nerves and removing your, your Mohs layer, um, then they will have permanent loss of sensation. So you have to think about where are they numb, review your anatomy, and think, is there a nerve there that I need to worry about? Um, and if there is, and you know that in advance of the surgery, you have to tell them in the informed consent that you could be numb. So if you're taking a tumor off here, they might lose movement of their forehead, right? But if you're taking a tumor here, they might have some numbness on the upper forehead. So these are just things to think about before you get going in the surgery. Now, scars contract as they heal, right? Um, and if you're working near free margin, remember this morning in the anatomy lecture, Dr. Carr was talking about um, checking to see how lax the tissue is on the lower eyelid. Um, you can get an ectropion, especially in these old guys. I've seen two or three old men with this kind of ectropion over the years. Um, this is a, a rhombic flap with a burrow's graft of a large cheek defect, and you can see that he's got an ectropion as he's healing. That's a significant ectropion, and these patients often complain about teary eyes, um, the dry eye sensation, the oculoplastics people get really mad when these things happen. You know, and there are some things you can try. You could try to inject some kinolog right into this part of the scar. Sometimes if you soften up the hard part, that'll be enough. But, I mean, this is, this is a pretty severe ectropion here. So a surgical correction is probably the best way to go. Um, at that point, you want to take out the entire part of the scar that's contracted and that's pulling down on that eyelid and replace it with a graft. Um, you also may consider releasing the lateral canthal tendon, which is right up in here, um, or to do a canthopexy or just do the canthopexy up there. So the canthopexy is taking, tightening up the ligament that holds the eyelid tight. Um, 
and it's just a plicating suture. So both were done for him. He's got the graft in place here. Remember, even full thickness skin grafts will contract about 10%, right? So you want it to be a generously sized graft. Um, and then we use these stitches called frost stitches, um, or frost sutures, where we suture from the lower eyelid to the eyebrow and leave them in place for the week while that graft is taking. That really helps to prevent ectropion. Um, so whenever I'm doing a lower eyelid skin graft, which thankfully isn't that often, <laughs> um, but a few times a year, I will do these frost stitches and I will just sew their eye closed and put a patch over it for the week. Um, that way you're, you're giving it every benefit to try to minimize that ectropion. Make sure when, you, when and if you ever do this that these are not dissolving sutures. <laughs> use proline, use nylon. I had a resident once use a, a dissolving suture here and it didn't work. It broke. <laughs> and look, he's happy at a week, right? Looking a lot better. Another thing we're doing very, um, pretty successfully actually, but we haven't written up and we'll probably do some trials on, is using a little bit of filler right in the lower eyelid here to help to fix that ectropion, to help to push it back into place. Um, and that's something that I've done only on a handful of patients, but has been a good temporary fix to relieve their discomfort of the eye irritation. And you can see here at six months, he's looking even better. So he's a happy guy now. Ectropion is a pain to deal with. So the best thing to do is to avoid it. Um, we can minimize the risk by using really deep fixation sutures. You know, if you've got a flap that's coming up, use anchoring sutures. Pin your flap to the periosteum so that there's no pull on the eyelid. You know, you want to put these deep sutures and anchoring sutures in a place where there's not going to be a lot of heavy weight or pressure on that flap that's pulling against the eye. Um, around the eye, you want to suture always um, parallel to the orbicularis, right? Um, so make sure you're thinking about that and, and placing your sutures horizontally in those areas. Undermine, undermine, undermine. The more you undermine, the less tension there is in the one stitch towards the end of the flap. Um, frost sutures are the ones I just showed you. And whenever possible around the eye, make your, your closures vertically oriented so that you're not causing any ectropion or any pull on that lower lid. All right. Any questions? Questions about ectropion or the last part? This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.